This series contains adult language and descriptions of graphic violence throughout. Listener discretion is advised. Cavalry Audio. This is Jeff Apple from Cavalry Audio. During the production of The Devil Within, we conducted several interviews to help give color and context to the tragic story of Tommy Sullivan, including one interview that we've saved until now. I sat down with the writer-director of The Devil Within, Brandon Morgan, to get his personal insight on the story, the genesis of the podcast, and his thoughts on the ordeal more than 30 years later. Jefferson Township is Brandon's hometown. He was 15 years old that night in January. He saw firsthand the fallout from those tragic events, events that stayed with him and were still clear in his mind after three decades when he finally decided to tell the story. Hey, Brandon, great to catch up with you again. You too, thanks. So the show focuses on the Sullivan family for the most part. What's not covered is you and your connection to the town and the story. Let's start at the beginning. When did you move to Jefferson? I moved there when I was three. I was born up in Maine, uh, an Air Force brat. In 76, my dad started flying out of the New York airports for he started flying commercially. And so uh, they just kind of drew a circle on the map from Manhattan uh, an hour away from the city and uh, started looking for houses and found this great little town and called Jefferson. And we moved in. I was... Uh, like I said, I was three. My older brother was was seven. You know, a little three bedroom house on Schoolhouse Road. It was great. My mom got a job as a as a teacher in the school system there, and uh, was a high school math teacher for the next thirty years. It was a great place to grow up. And and listen, I'm biased because I love it there. And I'm sure it wasn't unlike a lot of other small towns across the country and across the world. But for me, it was it was the entire universe. You know, it's where I made like probably the best friends that I'll ever have. That's where, you know, you know people and people know you. And it was the kind of place where where everything made sense, you know, where your family was there when you got home from school, where your friends picked up the phone, where you get on your bike in the summer and your parents say, you know, be home at dark and you're gone for 12 hours straight. You know, I was talking to my brother and I'm like, I don't know, how did we, what did we do for food? Like, and, you know, in, in the winter we had these massive snowstorms and snow days and sleigh riding and it was a perfect place to grow up. The friendships that you make there are friendships that that last a lifetime. You just said that it's a place where things made sense. I imagine that was true right up until things stopped making sense. Yeah. Yeah. So that was, that was strange. There wasn't a lot of crime in town. I remember uh, it was snowing. Uh, My mom and one of her best friends, Ann Kennedy, we're at a local restaurant having dinner. You know, obviously this is way before cell phones or any of that. And and later that night, um, my mom comes in and she's kind of freaking out. We're like, well, what's going on? She said she and Ann were pulling out of the parking lot of this restaurant and a cop car went screaming past them. Like almost hit them. And Ann was this uh, very kind of rambunctious Irish no nonsense kind of woman. And she says, you know what? I don't care if he's a cop. He shouldn't be driving that fast. We're going to follow him and I'm going to give him a piece of my mind. So they actually start following this cop. They get to the end of schoolhouse road. They take a right 
And Anne's like, oh man, they're probably going to my house because her kids weren't really immune to getting into a lot of trouble. And of course, the cop turns right on White Rock Boulevard. She goes, oh my gosh, they're going to my house. But then that's when they saw it. They saw just before the Kennedy house, the Sullivan home. Every cop car, it seemed in the world, parked in front of this house. And and they knew that something was really, really bad. Not unlike what what Dave Esposito told you in, in your interview with him, as he was coming home from his girlfriend's place and just sees every cop car that we'd ever seen from our town and from all the other towns descend on this little house. And that's when we, the first thing that we heard was that uh, Betty Ann Sullivan had been murdered and that the family was missing. That, that was the first thing we heard. And then... The rest of the night, the conversation was dominated by how Stuart Kennedy was one of the first to go into the house and helped Officer McConley clear the house. And we're like, why the hell would Stuart do that? He's not even a cop. They go, yeah, but he's probably the toughest kid in the neighborhood. So who else would you want going in, you know? And then, uh, and then it slowly started trickling out the next morning that they found Tommy dead, that he'd killed himself. And then in the days following that, uh, all of the satanic stuff started coming out. How did that affect you and your friends? When something like that happens in a small town, I'm sure it's all people we're talking about. Had you ever heard about Satanism before this? I've been thinking about that ahead of this interview. You know, like, I think the most that I had heard was in, in just kind of a theatrical kind of way with like Ozzy Osbourne or that kind of stuff where, where I knew like this way I knew that professional wrestling was fake. Like I knew that that Ozzy Osbourne stuff was, was a show, but what was Im- immediately the, the first wave of, of recognition that something was very different and fundamentally had changed in our town was I saw fear in my parents. And that's normally not something that you, you're aware of as a kid. Like if you think back to being a teenager, right? At least for me, my parents were still... They're the, they had their shit together, right? Like they were the problem solvers. If you had a question, that's where you went to, like they could figure things out. And the confusion and the fear in their faces where, they're, where they were like, they would look at me and my brother. I was 15 and my brother was, was 18. They're like, it could be us, right? Like who knows who else in town this, this evil had touched and had affected. Because obviously par- Tommy's parents weren't aware that it happened to him until it was far, far too late. Right. So parents were kind of like looking over their shoulders and going through our music and making sure that our school books were actually our books. Who were our friends? Where we where we said we were going to be? Where were we going on weekends? Because this was before cell phones, before any of that. I can't tell you how many times I would say, hey, you tell your mom you're sleeping over my house. I'll tell my mom I'm sleeping over your house and we're going to take the train into the city. And so that was the first sign that, 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 that things had changed, you know, and then stuff in school was very different. Um, just with regard to, to teachers keeping tabs on you and, and, and making sure, again, it was all about who was congregating with who, what music you were listening to. Were you wearing concert shirts? Were you smoking cigarettes? Were you like, how were you dressed? Like everything was under the microscope. You know, but now, and then within a, within a month, because of the success that our local juvenile detective Paul Hart had with understanding the case and the national attention that he was getting, it created again like a national 
kind of dialogue. Then you have Geraldo Rivera set up on Tommy Sullivan's front lawn doing interviews with people. And for a little town like Jefferson, New Jersey, that never sought out the spotlight, that was, that was, a, that was a very, very strange time. The interview with the mayor was very surprising with regard to the warnings from the church about the potential danger surrounding Tommy's funeral. Were you aware of any of this at the time? No, and to their credit, we didn't. I'll tell you something. I learned that when you learned that, when I listened to the interview. Okay, that was something that was kept from the general public at large. I had no clue that there was any kind of discussion with 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 you know the archdiocese of, of, of new jersey i didn't know that that they were advising the local law enforcement i was you know speaking to people who were connected politically back then with the town like they didn't know about it and and i don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing right i'm sure that they didn't share it because they didn't want it to cause a panic but also now as a grown-up as a husband and a father i would if there was a, a, an imminent danger like that i would want to know you know they did what they did and they made their decisions and and things wound up wound up okay. Um, but hearing, hearing the mayor, like you said, who was, you know, a, a young cop at the time, uh, reminisce about, about that was, was eye-opening for me. South Jersey has the Pine Barrens, but North Jersey has Clinton Road, which I could now argue is an even creepier, scarier place. Talk a little bit about your experiences over the years at Clinton Road. <laughs> It's a weird town, man. I'm telling you, it's a, it's a, it's a weird town. It's a beautiful town and I love it. And, and just like any other place, it has its folklore and it has its legends, right? And so it's a valley. To get anywhere, you either have a long drive across the valley floor or you have to go over mountains. One town over, Sparta. To get over Sparta Mountain Road, there's the new road and then there's an old one that kind of winds up through the woods. On the wind you road up through the woods, you can't go over that hill without some adult in the car talking about the beast that roams the woods of Sparta Mountain Road. And so from a little kid, we were like, ooh, look out the window, try and find the half man, half deer beast in the woods, right? It was like a joke. But so there was, we were always living with that. And some people believed it to be true and other, everyone else knew it was kind of a myth. Then as you get older and you get through middle school, you start hearing about Clinton Road, the most haunted road in America. And at that point, as soon as you know someone who's got a driver's license in a car, right? On the weekends in Jersey and Jefferson, that's where you'd go. You know, the older kids would bring beer and, and party or bring their girlfriends. But most of the time, it was just something to do to get an adrenaline rush because it was scary as hell because it's super, super dark. And you know how you you build it up in your own mind as you're going out there like, oh, my gosh, oh, my gosh, there's ghosts. It's haunted. It's going to be crazy. And everyone in the car starts. It's just this collective sense of anxiety that just builds and builds and builds. So by the time you get there... Any little thing that you hear or you see just sets you off. And people go, ah, and like freaking out. And if, you, and if you're brave enough, and, and maybe only half the time did anyone actually get out of the car and walk through the woods and then like forget it. Then you're, you're, you're like spring-loaded to just freak out and run back to the car because it, it, just, because it gets built up so much and it was just, it was so scary. So I remember tons of times just being out there with a car full of crazy high school kids looking for that 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 spook that scare that adrenaline rush that you know lets you feel alive on a summer night after years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by big wireless providers if we've learned anything it's that there's always a catch so when i first heard that mint mobile 
offers premium wireless service starting at just 15 bucks a month. I thought, what's the catch? But after speaking with them and using their service, it all made sense. There isn't one. Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they're the first company to sell wireless service online only. By cutting out retail stores, there's no crazy overhead costs that get passed down to you in the form of mystery fees. Instead, Mint just passes on sweet savings direct to you. I've had the service now for a few months. I live in Los Angeles, and I have tried it everywhere in the city, from the valleys to the hills to the freeways to the beach. It is loud and clear everywhere I've gone. All plans come with unlimited talk and text, plus high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. To get your new wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month and get the plan shipped to your door for free, go to mintmobile.com within. That's mintmobile.com within. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com within. Did that curiosity, that chasing the adrenaline rush of a scare, did that carry over at all into any interest in the lore of what happened to Tommy, the books, the literature that he was reading? Did you or any of your friends start to explore that? That's a great question. That's a great question. And I hadn't thought about it for a while, but I know exactly what the answer is. The answer is no. And the answer is more specifically, the overwhelming feeling around the youth of Jefferson was to protect the town. So we wouldn't go out there like, oh, we're curious about the Satanism stuff. We would go out there to see if there were still Satanists in the woods and to like drive them off. We were really offended that that someone had the nerve to bring that you know, to our shores and, and we're not going to allow it. And I think there was only one time that I know of that anybody actually ever saw anybody in the woods, uh, like dressed in a cloak and had like a big staff and like very theatrical. And, th- and that person was more scared than the kids who found them were, and they ran off. It became such a hot topic and such, it was so in the zeitgeist of the time that, that it just wasn't a viable location for those kinds of, of ceremonies anymore because everybody was aware of it, you know, and so they, they, they moved on. But for a time, that was the hotbed of Satanism in the Northeast. So how did the podcast come about? You know, I'm a writer, director, living in LA. I, I you know, I, I left Jefferson when I was 18. And it's a story that had just been sitting with me for a really, really long time in, in, a, in a way that I wasn't entirely, uh, that, that, that hadn't become clear yet to me. But they tell you as a writer, you know, write what you know. And so uh, a couple of years ago, I was uh, sitting around wondering what I was going to do next. And, um, and our friend, Dana, um, I had mentioned this to him. And... Uh, and I wrote it out as a television show first. And uh, Dana read it and he said, you know, this could work. This could work as a podcast. And I had never written for audio before. I had never done it. Um, but I was encouraged to, uh, to, to take a swing at it. And, and so I did. And, and I really enjoyed kind of the long form storytelling of it. Because in like a 30 minute television show where you have to develop characters and all that, it, it, I didn't really have the room to really like explore Richard Cross and to explore his history and Cross Castle or that little aside that we did with um, Violet Riker and the establishment of the Riker Public Library and to really have kind of a, a, a parallel narrative, which was kind of a love letter to Jefferson from my point of view, you know, from a kid who grew up there 
and loved it then and loves it still, um, while also being able to to tell the story of of what happened what happened to Tommy that night and the questions that are still around and and uh, how it still sits kind of uneasy uh, in me all these years later. Speaking of all these years later, when was the last time you were in Jefferson? Uh, last April, last spring. Uh, my mom, my mom still lives there. Uh, I went back to see her. I've got a lot of friends still there. And um, did you get out to Clinton Road or any of the places from the podcast? I did. I did. The first thing I did was I uh, I went up to the municipal building and I sat down with uh, with the mayor uh, to thank him um, for participating. And uh, and he's a good he's a he's a good man. He's a good guy. He uh, I remember him from when I was in high school when he was a young officer. He was always involved in the community. He was the guy who would in his uniform, he would come to the high school uh, like the day before prom night and and give a speech about not drinking and driving and we would do a lot of community outreach with, with the kids. Um, same with detective Hart. you know, he was the youth detective, like everybody knew him. Uh, and they knew his daughters. He had two daughters that I was in high school with. Short answer is yes. I went there. I saw my mom, I ate a bunch of pizza and, uh, <laughs> and then I, uh, and the funny thing, and I got to tell you was that was the first time in my life that I'd been to Clinton road, in the daylight. And it was a very, very, very different experience. It's, uh, it's such beautiful country there. You know, it's so nice. And, you know, and I see backpackers and I see joggers and I see, uh, and during the day, it's not scary at all. And, you know, you find Hank's pond, walk around the lake, um, and just kind of marvel at, you know, the, 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 the ruins of, of the castle and the big, the big rocks and you sit there and try to imagine what it looked like a hundred years ago, you know, before the, the forest grew back and, you know, when there were big lawns and, and um, it was actually a really nice experience, really, really nice experience, completely different from the last time that I had been there. Previous time there was 30 years ago. And it was one of those high octane adrenaline fueled, like, Oh man, we're going to die. Right. And it was after the murders it was after tommy killed his mom and then killed himself when like the satanic panic was in full swing right and i remember we were at the pool hall and we were bored and someone was like let's go to clinton road and half the people we were with were too scared they're like no man that's not cool and they were they were you know kind of couching their fear and like it's it's disrespectful right but they were just scared right and so just a little bit of of goading and now all of a sudden eight of us are in one car and we're driving out there and it's pitch dark and we're scared shitless and then a oh man i'll never forget this we're going to do this u-turn right and the headlights flash across this guardrail and written in black spray paint it says we miss you tommy and everybody just went ah <laughs> we just didn't even get out of the car we just hauled ass back to Jefferson. Yeah. Hadn't been there in 30 years. And now I'm back. I was back there last year and it was, and it was gorgeous and beautiful and, and completely different, you know? So that says something about a town's willingness to, to move on and to, and to, uh, and to deal with stuff. But, but in, in, in other ways, it's a little disheartening how the town has moved on because um, earlier when my previous trip to my last one, two years ago, um, when I first started the, the investigative kind of work for this, 
And I called the police station just for like a, a records request. Okay. And I'm talking to a young deputy, a desk sergeant, whatever. And I said, I said, yeah, I'm, I'm requesting some records regarding the, the Tommy Sullivan case. And he hadn't heard of it. He hadn't even heard of what had happened as a police officer in his town, like one of the defining crimes of Jefferson. And I had to explain it to him. And while I was on the phone with him, he Googled it in real time. He's like, oh man, that happened here. Did that happened in White Rock? I'm like, yeah, you know your boss, the mayor? Yeah, he said, he said he was one of the first officers on the scene. He goes, how, come, how could I have never heard of this? And I'm like, that's a really good question. <laughs> How do you think the show will be received by the residents of Jefferson? Did you wrestle with that as you were writing? I didn't. I didn't. I think it's a story that, that, that kind of needs to be told from a very selfish point of view, which we'll get to in a minute. But also, the people that I involved in it, I chose very specifically because of their standing in the community still. You know, kind of like by by association, if they're involved, the project is legit. So the Kennedys are, are held in high regard in the community still. Uh, Dave Esposito is a very well-respected man in, in town. Um, obviously, Mayor Will Susan uh, has been working on behalf of the community for over 30 years. So I, had, I, I wish that uh, that Detective Hart would have been willing to participate. I understand why he didn't. Out of He got very, very close with surviving members of the Sullivan family and felt that... Uh, that uh, his involvement in something like this um, might upset some of them. I, I totally get it. We, we had several long conversations on the phone and he's a good guy and I, I respect his decision. But with the other people that are, that are involved in it, I think they, they, they give it enough credit that um, the townsfolk will, uh, some of them listen, they're not gonna want to, to rehash old wounds and, and to remember it, you know, but, um, but there's a larger audience out there that, uh, that I think could benefit from it or that, or that could just enjoy it. Is there anything you wish made it into the story? Anything that you left out that you can talk about here? You know, I would have liked to, to hear Detective Hart uh, talk about, you know, from uh, an investigative, authoritative kind of voice, some of the more unexplained aspects of the case. Such as? Such as Tommy and, and, how, and how he died, his alleged suicide, that, um, that still doesn't, that still doesn't make sense to, to medical personnel who were there that night. The severity of, of his wounds. How could somebody do that to themselves? Because it doesn't make sense in a, in a chicken or the egg kind of scenario, right? To be able to cut your throat that severely would require the force of both hands, right? And even then, by the time you get even like halfway, you're probably not going to have the strength to finish it. But regardless, he didn't have both hands because his one wrist was severed so severely it was almost dangling by a thread from his arm. So he only had one hand, you know? So that aspect of it, it feels like was, was, was brushed under the rug, okay? And we say, yep, nope, suicide, boom. To kind of, to button it up and to close it up. And I don't know if that was uh, out of a sense of, of pressure from the church or from a desire just to move on, but there aren't any answers that, that make sense um, Unless there was another person there, okay, which if there was, why was it covered up, right? And apparently there wasn't any evidence of a second person being there in the woods or something that, that no one can explain and no one can understand. So I, I, I wished that um, 
we could speak to someone, a medical professional who could have looked at the, the police reports or the coroner's reports, but he was a minor and, and couldn't get any of those records, couldn't get any of those records. And, and ultimately, <laughs> I would really, really like to know uh, what, the, what the church knows. I've got a, I have a friend in LA who has a very, very wealthy, like best friend. This guy that he grew up with is just enormously wealthy. And a couple of years ago, maybe longer now, like 10 years ago, he told me that he made a massive donation to the Catholic church and was granted access to the archives, right? The bad, the secret like Vatican archives. Cause he wanted to like look around and like look at like Da Vinci manuscripts and that kind of stuff. And he did it, right? So I want to know what's in there. And if cr something crazy and paranormal like that actually happened in my hometown all those years ago, you know, I, I, I again, and I know people are going to go, oh, geez, come on, Brent. But um, for a 15 year old kid to hear the stories of what was going on, then they, it, it sparked my imagination in a way that 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 still hasn't been satisfied. Did this project help satisfy that? Did you write this as a way to heal or maybe exercise some personal demons in some way yeah i wasn't really aware of that as my intention going in but the, f the further i got into the story and especially towards the end where we where we get into the area of um where it's impossible to know exactly what exactly what happened right where no one else in that basement was alive where no one in that car when tommy was trying to flee no one was there. No one is alive. Where no one else was in was in the woods with him that night. So we don't really know. We don't really know what happened. And what I found out, what was still kind of alive in me, was this unwillingness to believe that a contemporary of mine, that a kid who grew up around the block from me, uh, could do something like that of his own volition. That this kid could be so angry or be so influenced by music, right, or by a book that he could do that to his mom and then do that to himself. And so, as you know, in the last, in the last episode, I found myself constructing this narrative that kind of paints him as a hero, a reluctant participant in these terrible acts and that, and that he fought as hard as he could to stop and then was ultimately unsuccessful in that. But once something that is public record that was found, a piece of evidence, was the contract that Tommy wrote in his own hand, an agreement between himself and the great demon of hell that he would kill his whole family and then kill himself. And he wasn't successful in that, okay? His dad and his little brother survived that night. So it seems like at least from the outset that Tommy was fully committed to fulfilling that contract and then didn't. And so I latched onto that, that piece of information and, and, and in the absence of evidence to the contrary, that's what I think happened, okay? Or at least that's what I hope happened. I hope that somewhere in the darkness of, of what was going on in his mind, he fought back against those, those urges and was able to save the lives of his dad and his little brother. Because that would make the whole scenario sit a little easier in my mind. Um, and I could relate to him a little bit more now. And he doesn't seem like that monster anymore to me. And listen, even though he probably is, you know, I mean, is, is, is it probable that, that, that he was an angry kid and he snapped and he killed his mom? Probably. Okay. 
And is there some way that he could have have hurt himself as as egregiously as he did? I guess. Okay. Uh, no one knows for sure. And I prefer uh, the scenario that that we came up with here for how the story ends. That's what I, that's what I'd like to think. And so, yeah, it was a bit of a, of, of an exorcism, personally, right? A bit of a of of a purging of of that idea of fourteen year old kid as a monster, right? I wanted to try and get rid of that and just look at it from a different point of view. And uh, and I'm I'm and I'm satisfied with it now. I, I don't have to dwell on the story anymore. Well, hopefully this project can bring some closure and maybe educate some people as well. And that's a really good point that you make because the lore of Satanism is, is real. Satanism as an institution isn't a dark and evil and murderous group of people. But like everything, there are some fringe branches of it that, that are. Okay, just like there are fringe branches of, of every kind of organized kind of group that that find like the darker side of things. But um, there are there are, you know, kids out there that are that are susceptible and adults that are susceptible to it. So but I hope this does uh, shine some light and, um, and educate some people on things and just and just, you know, as a as a little as a remembrance of this broken, unfortunate family that this terrible thing happened to, you know. They were, they were my, they were, you know, I was them. They were me. We're all, you know, we're all, we call ourselves J-Town boys, right? Tommy was a J-Town boy. And, uh, and anytime one of us falls, it's a loss. So. Thanks Brandon for allowing us into your home and for this interview. Well, I appreciate all of your work on it. Uh, I'm so proud of the show, man. So thank you. The more I think about it, the more I'm convinced that this was a story about an exorcism, not the one that the church believes it missed in the tragic case of Tommy Sullivan, but the one about a teenage kid who, along with his hometown, experienced a trauma that left a scar, that left questions that needed answers, a trauma that created a monster where a child once stood, maybe deservedly so, but still, it was that image that image of a once innocent boy that somehow committed those horrible crimes, that image that lived for so long in the memories of the people who were there, the people who had to find a way to reconcile that image, that monster, with the boy they knew, the teacher who had to look in the faces of their students and wonder, the parents who questioned their safety in their own home, and yes, that teenage kid, who every time I thought about Tommy, I just couldn't believe that someone my own age from the same town could do something so terrible. And so, more than 30 years later, I decided to write about it. And this time, I could craft a narrative where Tommy was something of a hero, and not the monster that he actually was. We'll probably never know exactly what happened in the basement of the Sullivan home that night, or in the woods behind the Eastman home a little while later. All we can quantify, for certain, is the tragic toll and lives lost and innocence shattered. And all we can count on is that the silent march of time will eventually erase even the harshest of memories. Now, with this particular demon purged from the mind of the writer, it's time for a new chapter. Thank you for listening to Season 1 of The Devil Within. Please make sure to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss updates on future seasons. For Cavalry Audio, I'm Brandon Morgan.
The Devil Within is a Cavalry Audio production. Written and directed by Brandon Morgan. Original score by Monkey Mind Music Group. Original music by Bruce Whitkin. Executive produced by Keegan Rosenberger and Dana Brunetti. For Cavalry Audio, I'm Brandon Morgan. the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.